You know, so many of you listening to this podcast are curious and want to know more about the world around you. Well, that's why you need to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. They've got a huge library of over 8,000 fascinating video lectures presented by award-winning experts. When you're checking these lectures out, you can learn about any topic that interests you. Literature, history, politics, even cooking and photography. The Great Courses Plus adds new courses all the time. And you can stream these lectures on your own schedule from any TV, laptop, smartphone, or tablet. You can even download the videos and watch them offline. And you have to check out their new course, Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. It's a fascinating exploration into the genre, analyzing great works such as Utopia, 1984, A Brave New World, even The Walking Dead, and how they serve as a useful tool to discuss our present and future conditions. Right now, Brett Easton Ellis listeners will get a free month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus. Just sign up through this special URL, The Great Courses Plus slash Brett. That's B-R-E-T. Get started today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. And Brett is B-R-E-T. This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman. On All of the Above. That's the name of my podcast, All of the Above. And uh, it's called All of the Above because we're going to talk about All of the Above. There isn't anything sacrosanct. There's nothing too above us or no, below or us. Or below us. Well, certainly nothing too below yes. us. But we have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Dewey Dreyfus, amazing. Yes. And America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare up first. I get to hang out with this guy. And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, oh. I'm telling you. Don't miss all of the above with Norman Lear. Download new episodes every week on the Podcast One app or subscribe at podcastone.com. The following program is a podcastone.com production. Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Walter Hill. In 1968, the New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael wrote a famous piece called Trash, Art, and the Movies, where she clarified her aesthetic and what she wanted from movies. Quote, like those cynical heroes who were idealists before they discovered that the world was more rotten than they had been led to expect, we're just about all of us displaced persons a long way from home. When we feel defeated, when we imagine we could perhaps now settle for home and what it represents, that home no longer exists. 
But there are movie houses. In whatever city we find ourselves, we can duck into a theater and see on the screen our familiars, our old ideals aging as we are and no longer looking so ideal. Where could we better stoke the masochism than at rotten movies in gaudy, seedy picture palaces in cities that run together? Movies and anonymity, a common denominator. Movies, a tawdry corrupt art for a tawdry corrupt world, fit the way we feel. The world doesn't work the way the school book said it did, and we are different from what our parents and teachers expected us to be. Movies are the cheap and easy expression, the sullen art of displaced persons. Because we feel low, we sink in the boredom, relax in the irresponsibility, and maybe grin for a minute when the gunman lines up three men and kills them with a single bullet, which is no more real to us than the nursery story of the brave little tailor. Now, this was written in 1968, and things are so much different now. People don't feel that way about movies now. And the gaudy, seedy picture palaces are now antiseptic multiplexes. And the idea of movies as disruptors, as counterculture narratives, exposing the lie of the placid corporate surface doesn't exist anymore because movies are now the placid corporate surface, having been completely engulfed by the needs of the global marketplace. But her point is that the movies we often love the most are tawdry and disreputable and fun, and that the stuff we are supposed to respect and award might very well be bogus. The genre movie for me was the honest movie, was the movie that confirmed my doubts about the world, went against the grain of what our parents and teachers taught us, and there was more truth in the visual psychedelica of Walter Hill's The Warriors than there was in Martin Ritt's rigged union drama Norma Ray, released within the same month. One was respectable and one was not. I enjoyed Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979, but find it smug and borderline unwatchable now, made with pristine bourgeois intentions. But I can watch Alien from that same year almost endlessly, grimy, funky, bloody, scary as shit. Growing up movie mad in the 1970s, I realized quite quickly, and especially as I got older, that I preferred a certain kind of movie. I preferred Brian De Palma's Carrie over Fred Zinneman's Julia, for example. I preferred genre movies, and Jaws was our god. The high-minded bourgeois art that I was encouraged to respond to in school and by boomer aesthetics usually didn't work for me as an adolescent who loved comic books and horror movies. And so on Golden Pond and Gandhi and Chariots of Fire were never going to be my thing. But the 1970s encouraged this kind of thinking, this love of elevated genre movie making, because the auteurs of the new Hollywood were making these movies in newfangled ways. Most of these movies I saw in and around Westwood Village, where the bulk of the first-run theaters were located in L.A., And there were grand movie palaces there, the Village, the Bruin, the National, the Avco Number 1, where these movies played and were elevated to a point of personal expression by a filmmaker who was given a loose rein in terms of being allowed to make the movie they wanted to make, and where the art of film wasn't yet tied to what the marketing division of a studio demanded in order to placate a global box office. That really didn't exist yet. In less than one glorious decade, from about 1975 to 1984, Walter Hill directed the following films. Hard Times, The Driver, The Warriors, The Long Riders, Southern Comfort, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire. And he wrote and produced Ridley Scott's Alien. Hill used the genre film as a form of personal expression. He was not necessarily a genre deconstructionist like Sam Peckinpah, but he elevated genre pictures, material that would have once been considered the B-movie into the A-movie. 
And in the process, he ends up influencing everyone from Quentin Tarantino to Shane Black to Michael Mann to Edgar Wright to Nicholas Winding Refn. For some of us, it might not have seemed like it at the time. And especially when we were being distracted by even flashier auteurs, this list of films now looking back with over 30 years of hindsight is one of the highlights of the new Hollywood that began officially in the late 60s, peaked in the mid-70s, and sputtered out of steam at some point in the early 80s. Before I start talking with Walter, I want to bring listeners quickly up to speed on Walter Hill. He was born in Long Beach and grew up in Southern California. And because he was an asthmatic as a child, he missed several years of school and became comfortable being alone, which also meant that he became a tremendous reader. And it enabled him to live in an imaginary world where one becomes comfortable with abstract ideas dominated by stories, narrative, and characters. Walter Hill also became a movie fan, and he immediately gravitated to genre, stating that his taste could be considered juvenile, adventure, westerns, musicals he loved, kid movies he did not, and he has stated that he still doesn't. While he was majoring in history at Michigan State University, he became infatuated with the short stories of Ernest Hemingway and came to believe that the hardest thing to do is write clearly and simply and make your point in an elegant way. And like so many boomer filmmakers, he also came under the sway of European films and became immersed in the burgeoning foreign arthouse cinema that was flourishing in the 50s and 60s and was what convinced Hill to become a screenwriter and then a director since film directors had become his new heroes and he wanted to make films in something that was the opposite of the constricted Hollywood format. He had fallen in love with Kurosawa and various Italian directors, among many others, but he also knew he wanted to make genre movies. He worked in the mailroom at Universal and then got into the training program of the Directors Guild of America, and he began working in television as an apprentice to shows like Gunsmoke, Wild Wild West, and Bonanza. He was second assistant director on two Steve McQueen films, The Thomas Crown Affair and Bullet, as well as Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run. During this period, he was also writing screenplays. When the new Hollywood had emerged and was taking over the studio system, Hill has said, I was very sympathetic and identified with the new Hollywood, but I also felt retro because I wanted to make genre films. And when Hill says that, he's not talking about turning the genre on its head, as so many members of the new Hollywood were obsessed with doing, but actual straightforward genre movies, unburdened by any postmodern idiom or irony, without, in other words, quotation marks. The first couple of scripts Hill worked on became big studio movies, Hickey and Boggs, rewritten heavily by its star and director, Robert Culp. And Hill rewrites the Ryan O'Neill movie, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, and ended up receiving solo credit. But it was the script for Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, starring Steve McQueen, in 1972 that catapulted Hill into the front ranks of screenwriters. Hill was originally working on the script, an adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel with director Peter Bogdanovich, but McQueen ultimately fired Bogdanovich and Peckinpah came in to direct, and it ends up being a very big hit. Hill had written two Paul Newman movies that are going to end up becoming dissatisfying ventures, The Macintosh Man and The Drowning Pool, both adaptations. And by this time in 1974, he's ready to direct. His first movie is Hard Times, a Depression-era drama starring Charles Bronson and James Coburn, made for only $2.7 million. And watching it now uh, and seeing how beautiful and assured it is, this seems impossible. And the movie got excellent reviews and made some money. This was followed by one of Hill's most obscure but influential movies called The Driver, which came out in 1978 and starred Ryan O'Neill after Steve McQueen turned it down. It's about a getaway driver and the cop pursuing him told in a minimal, almost 
abstract style, unusual for a Hollywood studio film, kind of like a less fantastical, more straightforward updating of John Borman's Point Blank. The Driver was a bomb, and Hill has said that if he had not already been shooting his next film, The Warriors, it is unlikely that his career as a director would have survived. All the reviews were bad, and it made zero dollars, even though it had its fans overseas. And yet, The Driver is the first movie usually shown at retrospectives of Hill's work now, and Tarantino is such a fan that he quotes it in both Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, and he has called it one of the coolest movies of all time. And it has certainly influenced everything from Michael Mann to Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, as well as Edgar Wright's upcoming Baby Driver. The Warriors was released less than a year later, and it landed in theaters with a seismic jolt. I remember the thrill as a 15-year-old getting into the Saturday night, 10 o'clock sold-out show its opening weekend with Fake ID, the movie was rated R, at the Bruin Theater in Westwood. And because there had been a series of shootings and killings of people on their way to or from showings in Oxnard and Palm Springs in Massachusetts, the movie was a legitimate scandal. But it was also, as Paul and Kale wrote in The New Yorker in the spring of 1979, with Walter Hill's The Warriors, movies are back to their socially conscious role of expressing the anger of the dispossessed. But this picture isn't a melodrama. It's a fantasy spectacle that has found its style in the taste of the dispossessed, in neon signs, graffiti, and the thrill of gaudiness. The Warriors enters into the spirit of urban male tribalism and the feelings of kids who believe that they own the streets because they keep other kids out of them. In this vision, cops and kids are all that there is, and the worst crime is to be chicken. Paramount opened the picture in 670 theaters without advanced press screenings, promoting it as an exploitation film via a thumping TV commercial. Probably the assumption was that the audience for this picture doesn't read reviews, but the literate shouldn't miss out on it. The Warriors is a real movie maker's movie. It has in visual terms the kind of impact that Rock Around the Clock did behind the titles of Blackboard Jungle. The Warriors is like visual rock. And she went on to write, the director, Walter Hill, is a fantasist of a peculiarly violent yet abstract kind. And one one of the rare American directors who function better in abstract patterned scenes than they do in conversational ones. Paramount hated the movie and didn't even want to release it, but its visual energy and the way it connected with young audiences was undeniable, and it became a big hit, as well as another movie Walter Hill produced in that summer of 1979, a little picture that he also co-wrote called Alien, which Hill set up at his production company but did not direct. Ridley Scott famously did so instead. Two of his best movies came next, the western The Long Riders, about the events leading up to the Northfield, Minnesota raid, and then the action thriller Southern Comfort, and as unbelievable as it may seem, neither of those movies did well. But then in 1982, Hill made 48 Hours, which became the template for every buddy comp movie from then on, and made Eddie Murphy in a role originally intended for Richard Pryor a star, and the movie was a blockbuster. The original buddy comp film, and you can see its influence in everything from Beverly Hills Cop to Lethal Weapon to Rush Hour, everything. The audacious musical Streets of Fire was next, a famous bomb that now looks and sounds better than ever, and then Hill actually made a Richard Pryor studio comedy called Brewster's Millions, Hill's only flat-out comedy, and a hit, and a movie that Hill has said, I made the film to improve my bank account and success quotient, and that it was an aberration in the career line. Crossroads followed, and he received a story and executive producer credit on James Cameron's Alien sequel, Extreme Prejudice, Red Heat, Johnny Hansen, and then there was another 48 Hours, which became the highest-grossing film that Walter Hill has directed. Two more westerns, Geronimo and Wild Bill, followed, and then Hill served as the director and consulting producer on HBO's Deadwood, but had a falling out with its creator, David Milch, during the editing of the pilot. But Hill won an Emmy for that, as well as another Emmy for directing Broken Trail, which became the highest-rated film made by a cable network when it 
premiered on AMC. He's here today to talk about his new film, The Assignment, which we will get to in a moment. But I first want to ask Walter about screenplays and screenwriting in general. Alien was an original script by Dan O'Bannon, which was supposedly quite bad, and that you and David Geiler rewrote into the movie Ridley Scott shot. Robert Culp rewrites your widely admired original script, Hickey and Boggs, really the script that opened doors for you and got you the getaway. Red Heat, the Arnold Schwarzenegger picture you directed, had seven writers on it. Going over Paul Schrader's career on this podcast, it was amazing to follow the narrative of how randomly at times his original scripts were used. They were rewritten. They were cut by directors. Paul Schrader sees screenwriting as not writing. He sees it as part of the oral tradition of telling stories. You're basically telling a story around a campfire. And if you've kept your audience interested, you've won. You're not thinking consciously about inciting incidents and three-act structures and the journey of the hero. Quentin Tarantino says he sees screenwriting as akin to writing a novel, complete with chapter headings. He writes the movie he wants to see. Neither one of them have any use for Bob McKee or Sid Field or the supposed rules of screenwriting, meaning inciting incident, act breaks, the hero's journey. Their point is it's probably there already if you're just telling a story. John Carpenter has called the screenplay in its first incarnation a selling tool, and that's it. You have said famously that the screenplay is the only form of literature that is only read by the people who will destroy your work. What is the function of the screenplay in a medium where the director is the artist? Screenwriter Larry Gross has said that success for a screenwriter is about the possibility, the phantom hope or dream of controlling the material. You once said that there is nothing more absurd than a properly motivated character. What does all of this add up to? Uh, What does all this mean about this thing called the screenplay? And do you agree with any of this? What does the screenplay do? I think in many ways I agree with all of the above. Uh, um, What John say was a selling tool? Well, that's that's true. I mean, it sounds more – it sounds like a lower – barrier than than he probably meant in the sense that you have to sell it to the studio or you have to sell it to financiers studios don't much exist anymore and you have to sell it to a cast that uh, is going to bring finance um listen i think that movies it is a director's form i don't have any quibble about that but um you're not gonna you're not gonna make a terrific film without a good script and you have to have a good idea. You have to pay it off, and you have to have characters that push it. So, but there was that moment in the '80s when everyone was taking seminar screenwriting courses, thinking they were going to hit the next big lottery, and that there were these books being published that had all of these rules for writing a commercially successful script. And it seemed that some people still there are still remnants of that in young screenwriters. I know if there are even any young screenwriters now, because. What's that business like? And well, pe- people are always looking for some way to cut through, I suppose, and they want to spend their money thinking. I don't think it can be taught, really, and I don't right. think – I think I th- you, you want to be a screenwriter? Read a lot and mm-hmm. see a lot of movies, and then you go out and take your chances and um, have a have a point of view and write a good story. 
the assignment has a pretty simple premise. And yes, it is lurid and horror movie-ish. Frank Kitchen is a contract killer. And when he kills the brother of a rogue doctor played by Sigourney Weaver, she captures Frank and performs a sex change operation on him for revenge. As much as seeing if this experiment would work, making Frank a woman would make Frank, played as both sexes by Michelle Rodriguez, maybe a gentler, more noble person. But no, that's definitely not what happens as Frank now goes on a violent, bloody revenge spree. And, you know, in its pulp intensity, it reminded me of another late period movie made by another member of the new Hollywood. And that's Paul Schrader with his um, kind of what the hell fearlessness of uh, Last Fall's Dog Eat Dog, which starred Nick Cage and Willem Dafoe, which Schrader shot for no money in like 20 days. And it had a lot of violence. It had some chases. It had, you know, uh, um, stuff that you would think you need to do on a bigger budget. But the premise of the assignment is so outlandish that it seems in many ways like, you know, an episode of Tales from the Crypt, perhaps, completely with, you know, complete with ironic shock, O. Henry uh, ending. And uh, w- and that was a series where you had directed three episodes in the 90s. But so the assignment starts out as a script that was written in the 1970s. Dennis Hamill wrote the first draft of a script called Tomboy about a juvenile delinquent who rapes and murders a woman whose husband is a plastic surgeon. The delinquent is sent to prison, but then the surgeon captures him and turns him into a woman. And then the character goes on to commit a series of murders. Um, you like its audacity and the potential uh, to be a terrific B-movie, but you couldn't figure it out then. What couldn't you figure out, and what finally led you almost 30 years later to make this movie? And um, by the way, there is an absolutely gorgeous graphic novel of the assignment available as well, listeners. Well, I think you've just said it. The audacity of it uh, always struck me. Uh, It had a kind of Sam Fuller premise it seemed to me which was you you took you took the the thesis of it you pushed it uh early on to its to its uh, full level and then you saw if you could write your way out of it in other right. words the which is a real literary conceit i suspect i that fascinated me it very much was tailed from the crypt that was that, that was uh, the first script that I I wrote, co-wrote, I should say, with Paula Heller, we just got hung up on uh, trying to make it too real and uh, trying to make it fit into the real world. And finally, I I could see this was going nowhere and abandoned it. Gave the project back to Dennis, and then uh, I ran into his script again, uh, literally down in my basement, and I somehow I thought, you know, tales from the crypt, and um, that was the key. So uh, there's a kind of graphic novel shorthand. I I had also started writing graphic novels by this point. So uh, maybe I was thinking a little more in those terms. At one point, Sigourney Weaver, as the surgeon, talks about Edgar Allan Poe's The Philosophy of Composition, which she interprets to mean that proper art is able to stand on style alone without any need for morality or ideology or politics. And I guess you could read it that way. Some people argue that Poe actually had written a hoax or a satire and that it really wasn't a real philosophy. But he was arguing that this is the best way for an artist to approach his art. And he also believed that the short story was a higher form of artistic expression than the novel because you can experience the totality 
of the short story in a single sitting as a single experience. But why do you suddenly have Sigourney Weaver talking about the philosophy of composition? Is it personal for you? Was it? Do you see its connection to your own work? Well, I think it. it listen, at the, at the very first level, uh, it is an extension of her character. Uh, she is an intellectual bully. She is. She's an intellectual. She's a bully. She's uh, in addition to her doctor surgical skills and all that she's a woman of great intellect she's using and she uses as handles to uh, beat up this kind of uh, mid-level bureaucratic uh, technician that's working for the state she uses uh, the most obvious kinds of references i think that he would uh, grasp onto which would be shakespeare and and i used poe i thought poe was fun yeah uh, so it, just at the character level, I thought it was correct. Now, if you ask me, <laughs> was there something else that occurs to you when you're putting all this down? Um, I like Poe's argument. Mm-hmm. I, I think, yes, I do too. Yeah, and uh, uh, how much of it speaks for me and how much of it speaks – I mean, look, you run into this, I'm sure, all the time. How many of these characters um, – you, you try to create a character. You try to char- make the character true. Uh, same time, the character is bound up within your own imagination and bound up within you. Um, where the line is is pretty tricky. I just want to go on a little rant here. The assignment is a revenge drama, okay? It is a revenge drama. It is not a movie about the transgender experience. Yes, it is breathtakingly lurid, but it is seriously free of ideology. It is lowbrow, but it's not offensive. And since the character of Frank Kitchen is not transgender, why do certain complaints exist? And yet in these oversensitive times, some members of the LGBTQ community, especially Glad, is already disavowing the movie without seeing it or even reading the script. I mean, are we living in an upside down authoritarian cultural moment when a group like Glad condemns something without seeing it or placing it within context? But this doesn't stop Nick Adams of Glad. And I have been punished by Glad as a gay man who isn't PC, who doesn't follow the gay corporate groupthink, and doesn't present myself as a neutered, polite victim. And here's a warning from Comrade Snowflake. Quote, we haven't read the script for the assignment, but it's disappointing to see filmmakers turning what is a life-saving medical procedure for transgender people into a sensationalistic plot device. We are at a crucial moment in the public's understanding of transgender issues, and stories like these have the potential to undermine the progress we've worked so hard to achieve. Now, I think this is so dangerous, this kind of thinking. This is worse than Trump's administration making cuts in anything. This is totalitarian groupthink that doesn't care about art or artists, okay? And that is what is truly disturbing. Uh, so I got turned into a girl overnight without wanting to. You know, I think we'd all be a little upset about that, don't you think, Nick Adams? I read recently a negative reappraisal of 48 Hours calling it unbelievably racist. But watching it again, as I did with 2017 Eyes, I don't buy it. It was made when it was made, and I don't know why social justice wars want to deal with everyone from Shakespeare to Faulkner to John Ford to Philip Roth to John Hughes. I mean, I guess recast them as politically incorrect artists that we should now ignore. I mean, I have to say, Walter, I was super annoyed by an intro about you and the vulture a few weeks back. The writer Simon Abrams writes... Quote, the assignment is certainly lurid and dated in its understanding of gender identity. 
And then he asks you the rather unbearable question. And I'm going to quote the whole thing because as a gay man in 2017, it bothered me. Yes, this is another comrade snowflake offering his two cents to Walter Hill. Quote, in your movies, there is no insult more cutting for woman than whore and no insult more barbed for men than faggot. There are several strong women in your films, some of whom are prostitutes, but almost no gay characters. But it feels like but it feels like homosexuality is just another perceived weakness that men talk about but rarely bring themselves to confront. Is queerness in that sense harder for men to talk about in your films? Would a male character find a harder time relating to another male gay character? Yes, crickets. Yes, can you hear the crickets? Yes, we are talking about studio movies made in the 1970s and 80s. What pray tell studio movies allowed this conversation to happen then and as a gay man i must say i hate pc gays i mean this kind of reductive thinking in the gay entertainment press is epidemic and i kept thinking what kind of art do you want well none they don't want it unless it's a mirror this interview in the vulture isn't the worst example of identity politics asserting themselves in the interview of an artist but it's indicative of something that i hope is going away so you know so walter queerness is something that many of your male characters are afraid of and don't discuss yes this is what the james brothers are concerned about in the long riders before the northfield minnesota raid you know yes this is at the top of ryan o'neill's concerns in the driver yes the baseball furies and the hi-hats should have sat down in a safe space on Coney Island and listen to some Bonnie there and de-stress with cupcakes and Play-Doh while talking about their gender issues as white men. Walter, aren't you just woke enough to get that what you did was so wrong? Seriously. But seriously, how does one deal with this as an artist? And what do you think about this approach to looking at art only through identity politics lenses now? I mean, art is not made by a democracy because art is about aesthetics and not ideology, or the aesthetic should be the ide- ideology. And yet Americans are now taught at a very young age that noble subjects automatically equals noble art and that art should be aspirational and high-minded and... I think you and I share an intense dislike for the socially responsible issues friendly film, the good intentions of a certain kind of movie, not to mention of a certain kind of critic that flatters an audience, usually the victim movie. It's become unbearable for me, and at this point I've almost zero patience for them. I mean, you said at one point, in this moment, art is being encouraged to take size and be part of the polemic, and I think this is dangerous. Okay, I'm done with my rant. It's, I'm panning over to you. Well, uh, I absolutely agree. I think identity politics is a hideous ramification of current American life. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm a little bit reluctant. I always think that complaining about your critics always sounds like uh, sour Sour grapes. And I have never responded to, uh, in particular, to a critic – uh, despite what I've felt quite a few times. I think as to the charge about um, being unfair to the gay sensibility, um, I would I would point out that in the first film that I did, the Struther Martin character is certainly a sympathetic character. In the second film, although a member of the criminal world, Ronnie Blakely is... Right, uh, the driver, is, uh, yeah. In the third film... Uh, the Rembrandt character, Marcelino uh, Sanchez's character, is certainly a sympathetic gay character. So I don't uh, – I think that sometimes uh, that, uh, 
the characters that I've created are in a kind of, shall we say, um, homosexual panic or something. Mm-hmm. They they come out with uh, they say terrible things, um, but that's that's drama, and I don't know what the hell people are going to do about it. I did read that uh, uh, review that you were quoting. I don't read a lot of them, but I did read that one. And it, <laughs> and I was I was tempted to sit down and write something. Um, I didn't, but uh, uh, as I say, it's. Um, I think that uh, trying to respond to your critics, the uh, I quote this every once in a while. There, there, there's there's something from Samuel Johnson. Doctor Johnson said. You enter the arena uncalled mm-hmm. to seek your fortune and hazard disgrace. Bad reviews are part of the deal. You know, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna get your share. I got a lot of them on this thing. This mm-hmm. is um, on the whole, the movie is getting lousy reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, you know, you play the cards you're dealt and you move on. I think there's uh, no more graceful. Uh, way to approach it than that, and uh, you you'd certainly don't like to pick up paper and read your bum or something, but no. uh, at the same time you don't believe it no you know the, the the biggest thing about what you do, what I do is you have to absolutely have an almost unshakable belief in yourself true and and you can say, well, that's a huge ego or whatever you want however you want to put it but uh you have to have that and uh so if they're going to throw spitballs um they are and you move on but the spitballs now do seem to be more and i've never written to a critic ever and i've got a lot of bad reviews in my career and i've never written to a critic i for some reason i got thick armor uh, at an early age don't care but this notion that art should be something and that it needs to almost be made by like a democracy in a way where are these excluded characters where is the gay the the good gay person i mean i'm as a gay man i want to see all kinds of gay representation i want to see gay people playing murderers and fuck-ups and drug addicts and crime bosses and you know the minute you begin to tiptoe into that realm right now it's like you're considered a homophobe you're considered not part of the conversation and that that's more that what bothers me rather than you know critics just doing their yeah, dance there's there is the it's the oldest thing that somehow art should be ennobling it is ennobling but it's not ennobling off the subject matter and it's not ennobling off the theory of good intentions it's ennobling because <clears throat> the artist can well what is it to be an artist i was taught the the first thing the artist is, first of all, observant. Secondly, you're meant to hold up a mirror to life and give some personal uh, yes. uh, vision of on your perception of the reflection. Um, and if you're good enough or true enough or unique enough, maybe some of it has value. Um, beyond that, we're all in the game and we go forward. <laughs> the assignment uh, is, you know, like most movies, probably going to be watched by people in VOD and not on a giant screen. Yes. Knowing this, 
Does this affect at all the way you shoot it? And do you? And also, I just want to know as a side: Do you ever go to movie theaters anymore? I mean, I do, but out of habit, and because I prefer to see a yeah. certain kind of movie. I was on. actually there on uh, day before yesterday. What did you see? Uh, the Lost City of Z. I was there yesterday too. Where did you see it? I saw it at the uh, the old Cinerama place. Uh, I, I did too. Yeah, I was there Sunday. Oh, okay, I was there yesterday. Uh, what do you think of that movie? Well, I thought it was uh, well made, and I thought it was very uh, well made, very well shot. It was very well shot. I admired it. I mean, I you know, I did too. I admired it a lot. But it is James Gray is a very serious young American filmmaker, and I want to talk about him a little bit more near the end of the, uh, of the podcast. But he is burdened by a kind of narrative problem that kind of goes through all of his films. And I thought that this movie kind of went off into places that were not as interesting as other places it could have gone into, specifically the jungle, you know, and that the last stuff is just not as interesting as those first two excursions into the jungle. But the photography is amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, I met him once. Uh, he He's a delightful guy. Delightful. Oh, I bet. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and r- really smart, especially for a film director. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, uh, yes. And uh, he uh, uh, and ambitious. Yes, in a way that a lot of Americans aren't. In a good way. A yeah, very good in way. In a good I way. And uh, I think he's a terrific filmmaker. And and I must say, I quite liked him when I met him. Does shooting for the small screen at all change your aesthetic? I don't think so, uh, and not particularly mine. I, I think number one, you don't quite know what's ever going to happen to your film, but uh, uh, there's always the chance that somebody else will. When, when you're making something very independent, uh, as this one was, it was going to go up for sale after it was shot and got together. Uh, the who knows how they're going to, you know, maybe they're going to want to put it in 50 theaters or 500 or 1,000, or maybe it's going to go straight to VOD. You, you just don't know in this kind of climate we're now in. I can't say I've been surprised about what's happened to it. And uh, I don't think you shoot it so much for the screens that you think you're going to be on as you do the kind of story it is and the, what the characters are doing and I think the visual truth really has to do with the character truth, the narrative truth. This is a very generic question, but what were the seminal movie-going experiences that defined you as a filmmaker, the movies that had their biggest impact on you? Uh, I know some people think they were one, there were one or two when you're younger, and then you realize as you get older that, well, it was actually those five. But what were the handful that you can say, okay, these were the ones that defined me? A hard question, and you you think maybe that time and circumstance may have altered your memory. I 
I do have this feeling that the movies that I saw when I was very young were much more important than those that I saw when I was, say, 20 years old and kind of forming my – trying to work out some aesthetic groundwork. Yes. (laughs) But the the emotional movies that you reacted to with with such a – in a visceral way when you were 10 and 12 years old. uh, I was a great movie fan. And I didn't uh, – I think Westerns were really kind of my favorites. But the I liked all – I mean, I liked comedies and I liked musicals if I thought they were, were good. And uh, I would say that uh, the Howard Hawks, The Thing, had an enormous power over me. I, I think I was 11 years old or something when I saw it. Uh, Shane had a tremendous uh, – the, the power of the storytelling was was incredibly great for me. Um, a Robert Aldrich movie uh, with Jack Palance, a war movie that I saw when I was a kid where they ran over his arm and tore his arm off. Uh, I, I never never quite got over that one. Um, and, and some of the comedies. Um, you said that directing your first feature, Hard Times, was harrowing. Uh, I guess in good ways, bad ways, um, Struther Martin ways. Um. Well, when I, uh, I've always said, look, life's hard, and you're going to go through a lot of. There's a lot of dark moments ahead, but uh, one thing I'll never have to be is a first-time director again. Right. <laughs> you know, you were through that one, and um, um, so um, ah, you know, people are always testing you, and uh, there were some circumstances surrounding the movie that. We're not we're not entirely pleasant. It wasn't a bad shoot, but uh, uh, Charlie Bronson was meant to be a bear. I actually got along with Charlie pretty well. Um, James Coburn, who everybody loved, uh, Jimmy and I didn't get along terribly well during the shoot, and uh, he didn't he didn't like being in a Charlie Bronson movie. He was kind of kind of coming down. He was coming down. He was suddenly number two in the call sheet instead of being right. number one, and. Uh, he also knew that I had written the part. He had been told um, that I had written the part for Warren Oates, and I wanted Warren, and that didn't work out. So I think he did not imagine that he was a secondary choice to right, Warren. Right, right. So, you know, it's the uh, he did a great job for me, mm-hmm. and and uh, I have no we. we kissed and made up years later, and we never got a chance to work together again. But, uh, you know, in the end, you're just – you're very thankful he was in the movie. He did a, he did a terrific job for me, and uh, I'm better off. Well, the movie has such elegance and control for a first-time director, and it has a calmness to it. And there are very few tracking shots or zooms. And you said that's because when you move the camera, you can lose composition because it is altering shape. But why is this a concern for you as a young filmmaker in 1975? Pauline Kael, when she was discussing Jaws with an older director in 1975, told him that she had been amazed by the assurance with which Spielberg had toyed with the film frame. And the older director said, well, Spielberg must have never seen a play. He's the first one of us who doesn't think of the proscenium arch. With him, there's nothing but the camera lens. Where do you fall in all of this? Well, I was very aware when I was doing Hard Times that I did not want to make a flashy, new-looking movie. 
I didn't want, for lack of a better, I didn't want the Richard Lester type of thing. I thought that um, I wanted to show that I could play with the big boys, which were the old boys, I guess. Mm-hmm. But but deeper than that, I mean, that was part of it. It's you know, it's always ego and ambition is part of who we are. But at the same time. Deeper than that, I thought it was appropriate for the story. I thought uh, story took place in a period we in a, in the 1930s. Uh, I felt badly compromised because the movie was in color. I really wanted to make it oh, really? in black and white, and I wanted it to look like a movie that had been made in Interesting. 1936. Interesting. And uh, so I thought that that was. Uh, the endless tracking shots or something like that or zooms and all that kind of business uh, just were not appropriate to my my aims i want to talk a bit about john borman's seminal 1967 neo-noir crime thriller point blank starring lee marvin and its connection to the driver uh point blank is a kind of oh god existential thriller i guess and it's also one of the great la movies and Philip Lathrop, who shot The Driver, also shot Point Blank. And a revelation for you was reading Alex Jacobs' script for Point Blank, which was an adaptation of a Donald Westlake novel writing as Richard Stark. Can you all keep that all together in your mind? It was the first of the Parker <laughs> novels. But what happened when you read that script that opened up a door for you? Is there a conscious connection between Point Blank and The Driver? Uh, I'd have to leave that for others. I mean... We're. Uh, I'd like to think there was a connection. To tell you the truth, mm-hmm. Alex and I, I. I knew Alex. I had been introduced to Alex uh, uh, by Troy Kennedy Martin, who was a very good friend, screenwriter, um, English writer. They knew each other in London, and um, and Alex was an extraordinary character. He looked like a pirate. He only had kind of. He had one. I don't know where he'd lost an eye or the eye was dead or something and he had long black hair and he's very swarthy and uh, very pugnacious personality um and he uh he had written this screenplay he gave me a copy of it uh and it was so different in style and it was so minimal and pared down and and he had this uh uh, uh which i was enormously attracted to of not flowery speeches, not uh, you know, fill her up, buddy. At the gas station was you know his uh, his idea of <laughs> the way to dialogue, and that the circumstances of putting the character within the circumstances, and then keeping the dialogue as flat as possible. This was not the kind of uh, given ideal that the of studios uh, at the time, nor certainly among actors and. Uh, it took very special actors like Lee Marvin or Steve McQueen or, or somebody, Charlie Bronson, to kind of... Now, you can make easy jokes about that, that they weren't up to big speeches and this and that and the other thing. But, uh, you know, they were they were so cinematic in their... I mean, I don't know, oh, yes. you know, and uh, they could do it with a look. I was When I worked with McQueen, I was always struck by... I don't need to say that. I don't need to say that. It's right. it's, it's already there, right? You know, and uh, or let him let him say that. You know, I'll just uh, I'll just peel an apple, right? And uh, 
Well, he can he can say it, and you know he um, he was quite right about uh, about himself on the screen. He knew, um, in a way, he didn't even perceive himself to be an actor. Right. Uh, I don't know if Charlie did. Charlie didn't didn't I think? But they they perceived themselves to be movie personalities, stars. They knew they had a responsibility. They they all felt. A, terrific responsibility to their fans mm-hmm. you know and the fans wanted to see him win right that was uh, so much part of it and um, um, Steve used to say no my as I remember something about the break of his Levi's the way they broke over his tennis shoes and he'd, he'd say no my fans want just a little <laughs> <laughs> just a little break there and uh, uh, I thought that point blank uh it, I think it holds up very well. Oh, it does. You I know. just watched it recently, yeah. And uh, I would like to think, look, we're all influenced by other works. I mean, that's just, uh, every once in a while, I, I have this, like when I first started, people said, they don't say it much anymore, but uh, they moved on to other influences about about me. But they, when I was first starting, people said, oh, he's very influenced by Packenbaugh. Who obviously I knew and much admired, but and any uh, any discussion of Peck and Paul cannot really escape the idea that he was enormously, which is absolutely true, he was enormously influenced by Kurosawa. Right. You look at Kurosawa's work; he is enormously uh, influenced by John Ford. Mm-hmm. You look at John Ford's work; it is. Uh, absolutely informed by D.W. Griffith in style and in True. you know uh, you look at D, you look at Griffith he is a child of Charles Dickens you know we all you me we're, we all stand on each other's shoulders we all hold hands we all the big thing is do we exhibit our uh, a unique personality within that within that pyramid yeah but uh, this idea that everybody's looking for something wildly original doesn't exist. Here is the British film historian and critic David Thompson on you in his biographical dictionary of film. Quote, here is contemporary success without mercy, comfort, or irony. Passing lightly over details from the young Hill's life, one can survey the broken-down landscape of visual energy commercial compromise managed with a shrug that hopes to disguise irresponsibility as cool insolence. What is he talking about? <laughs> you ought to ask him. Uh, what do you think uh, he's talking about? Well, I think he doesn't like my films, and uh, I think uh, the idea that my films are without irony, I would suggest is, uh, you know, <laughs> take another look, but... Uh, as I say, I don't think he's a fan. And I was just wondering in terms of, like, because I know that even though individual critics have I, I have no interest in them, uh, but there does seem to be, if people don't like my work in general, there are things about it they just don't like. And so I can kind of, I know what those three or four things are. I go, okay, whatever, you guys don't like them. But if there was, if you know, if there is something, what is the thing that people might not be as... Interested in. Well, and one may choose not to answer, but I, I would also point out these tend to be two-way streets. Uh, and um, um, I have my own opinion about 
certain valuable critics that I think are valuable and others that I do not. And um, Well, let's talk about one of them for a bit. The Warriors was hated by Paramount to the degree that they didn't want to release it, and yet it becomes a hit, and it gets good reviews. One of the best reviews is from the New Yorker critic, Pauline Kale, who had liked Hard Times as well in a review called The Visceral Poetry of Pulp. So she kind of got it. You said you wanted to take the gang situation and not make a movie about a social problem, which it kind of is much more in the Sol Yurik book than it is in, in your movie. Yeah. Instead, in your movie, it's just, as you said, just a neutral thing or even a positive aspect of their lives. You've also said people who object to violence shouldn't go to the movies. What do you mean by by that exactly? I mean, I think it's two things. I think what you're doing here is, again, elevating the genre movie. You don't want to turn it into an earnest liberal melodrama about these poor kids who are stuck in this dead-end world. And also, you like elements of genre. Exactly. I I always said that the uh, people are always asking me why this, why was it so popular? And uh, other than it's uh, you know in the old Hawksian, uh will they live? Will they die? Uh, that's drama. There's there's a lot of that in it. But uh, it was the fact that it, the movie accepted uh, the uh, protagonists and the gang situation on their own terms. They didn't see it as. Uh, that is to say, a socially defensive organization in a uh, in an outlaw and hostile world, and uh, and the movie did not preach. Isn't it terrible that these uh, young men and women are not going to college or going to be lawyers and doctors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? It uh, it worked. It now. It also was at a fantasy plane, yeah. but there's many different levels. But that's – I think that was one of the keys to the fact that it – I think they're still accepted. They still play it a lot. And uh, the violence thing, you know, I mean, uh, we all get hammered on this. But, uh, I mean, I just think it's naive and, and kind of – I mean, conflict, violence, conflict, conflict, violence – what is more violent than Wuthering Heights? I mean, there's emotional violence. There's physical violence. That sounds like an easy answer, but it's not. It, it is inherent in the uh, – uh, uh, is the terrible emotional violence that people do to each other. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane is <laughs> yeah. with us currently. Right. Uh, um, you know, it's 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 what it's about, and it's. Uh, I suspect it's as much therapy as anything else that uh, people can get rid of their uh, anxieties and pent up emotions quite often, violent feelings, but through through artistic expression, not uh, not so much creating it. I mean, experiencing the as an audience. The late John Hughes said, I had been writing scripts for quite a while, but I never knew what screenwriting was about until I read the script Walter Hill wrote for Alien. I guess the Alien script you bought from Dan O'Bannon was supposedly not very good. And so I, either you or both you and David Geiler rewrote the entire thing, fleshing it out, taking it seriously. Because wasn't the original thing kind of a joke, a spoof of some kind of horror movies or something? And I'm going to ask a stupid question. Why didn't you all share screenwriting credit instead of just the story credit? Well, these are the mysteries of the, the WGA. The WGA, but uh, also the, the rules were a little different then, and the fact that we were producers on the project meant that you had to write 
something like, I don't know, what was it, 75% uh, original material or something like that to even get a second credit. And the fact that we were we put ourselves in as a team uh, also counted again. I can't remember the. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, no, no, it was not a it was not a very good script. Dan's no longer around. I, uh, uh, and I know he felt uh, he was quite angry about people talking about the script and not giving him full credit. And uh, so. As I say, he's not around to answer anything anymore. Yes. So uh, I feel a little funny about it. But uh, they had written a script. They they brought it to us. This, the script had been uh, turned down by virtually every studio and certainly by Fox. Fox, uh, I read it. and uh, But it had this scene, the, what we call the chest burster mm-hmm. and John Hurt. Yes. A sad loss recently, yes. uh, and uh, I gave it to David, and I said, uh, "Read this. I think maybe there's something in it." And uh, he read it, and he calls me up. I remember it was during Carter's acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention, I think, in '76, <laughs> and he said, uh, "This is dreadful." And I said, "Yeah, it's lousy." And now he said, "This." He said, "That you know, goddamn script's dreadful." And I said, "Keep reading." He was just on page twenty-five or something, and and he calls back about three minutes later and says, "I see what you mean." <laughs> and uh, so we acquired it, and uh, our our production deal at Fox at the time was we were meant to be David was wonderful screenwriter, uh, and absolutely the best dialogue writer I've ever worked with. Um, the deal was that we were meant to be fixing scripts and getting them ready to we were both screenwriters so david ran off with his girlfriend to hong kong and i was, was christmas time and i took the first pass on the thing and it uh, there were just guys you know in the spaceship and and uh, it was uh, what was the name of that guy van daniken it was a kind of van daniken Exercise. It had all this mm-hmm. stuff from pyramids from South America and that kind of crap in it. And uh, I cleaned it all up. And but the big thing that I did was I I made uh, the Ripley character, uh, created the Ripley character, and made it a woman, and uh, and made other women on the on the on the ship itself, and. Uh, Ripley. I named Ripley Ripley from Believe It or Not. Her first name is Ellen, which is my mother's middle name. And uh, we went from there. It, it became a uh, – the, the vision was if we did this kind of B picture with an A picture of, with the – shot it like a really good commercial, like a really beautiful first-rate commercial. Because commercials were – making a big breakthrough then. They were suddenly, you know, becoming a, I don't know if you want to call it art form. Well, especially but, the Brits, where at least yeah, Alan Parker. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And with a first-class dub, and if we could get some scares into this thing, uh, it would be a commercial movie. And uh, so I worked on the script, and then David came back, and we worked on it together for a couple of drafts. And uh, studio... Suddenly, and that we were helped by Star Wars coming out. God knows, suddenly science fiction went from the back porch 
to you know the hot genre and we started uh studio started offering it out uh to directors and we were turned down by uh, christ it must have been 30 fucking directors said oh everybody said no 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 it's b picture origins i think we're probably a little too clear for them and uh uh except robert aldrich said yes we sent it over to Robert Aldrich, and we were deeply thrilled. He called up and said, "Ah, right, come on over here. I'm going to talk about this." And, and uh, he was this—he was a very different character than the one Alfred Molina is playing, playing on Feud. Feud. Feud yeah. yeah, it's just—it's ludicrous, really. Yeah. That if you knew the real Robert Aldrich, and he was a tough guy, and he, yeah, get over here, and I'm going to talk about this. And, and he said, "No, this is a good script. You've got—it's a patrol script. You got the monster thing." He said, "Yeah, I, I know how to make this." He said, "You know, it's all about—it's the fucking monster. We gotta, we gotta figure out something. Make it. I mean, maybe if we got like an orangutan and we shaved it, and and we, yeah, well, good. That sounds weird. <laughs> and uh, I was enormously, uh, uh, as was David. You know, we were." Uh, great fans of Aldrich. You know, he made a lot of good, yeah. very good films. Anyway, for one reason or another, it did not work out with Aldrich. And uh, uh, Ridley came into it, and Ridley uh, did a great job with it. Uh, I still think it's his best movie. I, I agree with you. I you think know. it still is his best movie as well. And I just wondered why you didn't direct it. I didn't, uh, in those days, it's before CGI and all that kind of business, and the effects and models and all that, it's going to take forever. Yes. And I felt myself to be a kind of guy that needed to see it happening on the stage. And uh, it just didn't seem to me to be um, what I wanted to do. And uh, I was very proud of my association with it. But, yeah. uh, um, and I. I'd be the first to tell you, I think Ridley did a wonderful job. Wonderful job, yeah. Well, a nifty little movie came out a month or so ago called Life with Jake Gyllenhaal and briefly Ryan Reynolds. And it's a pretty effective alien redo. The problem is it's all CGI or looks like it's all CGI. Every shot of the monster has a look from the CGI lab. And what made Alien so terrifying was that we were aware that the alien was as real and as tangible as the crew of the Nostromo. And that gave the movie a freaky vitality that there was a guy in a suit uh, that life just simply doesn't have, even though I must admit life is pretty damn scary at times and it has a wonderfully upsetting ending. But the quote-unquote marvels of CGI and its ultimate dead end, I guess, uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do, but uh, it isn't going to carry the day. <laughs> no, it's not. I just want to hear if you agreed or not. Yeah, I do. Maybe. You follow the Warriors up with two of your most interesting and accomplished movies, The Long Riders, your first Western, even though you said all my films are essentially Westerns and Southern Comfort. And then the movies were critically acclaimed. They just don't do well. And all of these years since 1981, I was under the impression that Southern Comfort had been a hit. I had been so kind of blown away by it when I saw it in 1981. And yet it wasn't. It was actually a bomb. Pauline Kale said of you, here's Pauline again, as an action director, Walter Hill has a dazzling competence. Southern Comfort comes across with such immediacy that it had a near hypnotic hold on me. 
And now it is, you're about four or five movies in, and what you say about your sensibility is now totally apparent. I'm making westerns. I'm always making westerns, whether it's a movie that takes place in the future or an action adventure like 48 Hours. What I'm really doing is making cowboy movies. I like westerns because everything is very clear in them. And this clarity now, about five movies, is now a part of your vision. And if you are a cinephile and you're watching Walter Hill films, you grasp this very easily. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen action sequences where I'm always aware spatially of what, where everyone is and what's what's going on. I mean, I think Hitchcock could pull this off at times. Peck and Paw in that jagged way, sometimes De Palma's elaborate, you know, set pieces. But really getting back to it, what happens to you when you make movies as beautiful and gripping and satisfying as Long Riders and Southern Comfort, and they underperform or don't perform at all? I mean, how does it affect you? Does it? Well, listen, we we make them hoping to find an audience, and uh, the audience of people that appreciate what you're trying to do, and a wider audience that uh, will sustain your career so that you can keep doing it. You always have to be very careful, though, about... Uh, uh, in those days, the foreign reports were not, you know, it wasn't given in the way they are now. Uh, Southern Comfort did quite well in some foreign venues. Mm-hmm. It did poorly here. Mm-hmm. and But see, films in those days were almost always uh, judged by domestic. Right. Uh, and... Uh, the Long Riders was was not a big loser. It uh, it uh, broke even. It was mm-hmm. about a break even movie, which meant the studio made money on the distribution. Uh, the Southern Comfort did poorly in the United States, but it did quite well in several other markets. Whether it was a financial, I'm not saying it was ever a real financial success, but it wasn't the complete you know, financial disaster either. Mm-hmm. You've said that you don't want to do more than five takes and that if you end up doing 20 takes or whatever, everything kind of goes dead. What do you think about a director, someone like Kubrick, who does 100 takes, sometimes 180? I mean, if you're doing 100 takes, do you really know what you're doing? Well, supposedly William Wyler, who did many takes, uh, could pick out three, eleven. 17 and 24, he would say, or something. And um, he had a the kind of memory for it that uh, I'm not built that way. Uh, I don't think, listen, I don't think there's any proper way to direct a movie. I think we all bring our own sensibility to it. Uh, Ford famously uh, didn't like to go more than one or two takes. Uh, you know, Ford, Ford always said, first day of a movie, if you had any guts, if you want to really run your show, you should fire somebody and print take one and move on. It scares the actors to death. And you know, <laughs> and from that point on, <laughs> they think they're going to have to live with what what they're doing on the first um, very first take. So uh, I don't like to do a lot. I, I like things to be a little rough around the edges now. I, I like uh, mm-hmm. there's a spark that gets in there, I think. That's good. Uh, they don't get over rehearsed, but I, I also think you must rehearse up to the point you think it's about to happen. That can be yeah. a, a, that can be a very short rehearsal, or it can be a long rehearsal. Uh, it it really depends on the moment and the actors and the day and the nature of the scene. I mean, it's just so. All of it is 
partially instinctive seat of the path. I mean, look, directors make movies at very different uh, – some directors make a film, Hitchcock being the, the real classic example, always said the film was made by the time he got ready to shoot it. Right. He's already done it. Other directors uh, absolutely make a movie on the set. They they rehearse like hell, and it's about what you get there and the finding moments of truth with the actors, and then they'll shoot it adequately. And there is another, the third style, the Kurosawa peck and paw, shall we say, uh, is you you shoot, you get the script the best you can get it, you shoot. You give yourself lots of footage, and you take it into the editing room, and you find the movie. You make right. the movie in the editing room. Those are all, you know, those are all techniques that wonderful directors have used. Uh, Leo McCary made his movies on the set. Right. Um, uh, as I say, Kurosawa made them in the editing room, and uh, doesn't mean you you shirk when you're shooting. You have to. You know, you have to get something worth editing, but uh, so the there is no there is no answer about did Stanley Kubrick know what he was doing? I think so. I mean, I think uh, I'm much I'm much more of a fan of his early movies than I am his later movies. Yes, but, yes. But uh, that's me, uh, and uh, for most people, I think they would. Uh, dispute your <laughs> well i'm just i'm just saying that because i've talked to actors who have been work, who worked on stanley kubrick movies and they often felt that he they didn't they didn't think he knew what he was doing for example in full metal jacket he thought maybe he was going to make a kind of dr strange lovey in full uh, vietnam war film or he was going to make the movie about the sniper more or less and matthew modine said i was completely lost so all the actors were lost we didn't know what we were doing and also the puppeteering of actors in terms of giving line readings and telling actors how to say stuff was is an interesting way to work. Certainly Jack Nicholson was not happy shooting The Shining for, you know, a year and doing 180 takes of him, you know, sitting there. I believe he made him uh, – uh, I've heard that he made Jack uh, be his own stand-in. He, he did yeah, for that, all that stuff, yeah. That was, <laughs> that was crazy. I, I suspect Jack wasn't real happy about that. But, um, uh, maybe that shows up in the final half of that movie in his performance.
Streets of Fire I watched last week with my boyfriend, who was 30, and had never heard of it. I was 20 the year it came out, and there was a lot of pre-release excitement about it. And I felt it was a weird movie at the time. Didn't quite work for me. But what a difference 30 years makes. And I'm not saying it's a great film by any means or even among your three or four best. But really, what a movie movie. Nobody knows anything about a movie until 20 years later, you've said. And yes, this applies to you, Kramer versus Kramer, who won the Best Picture Oscar over Apocalypse Now, and Gandhi, who won the Oscar over E.T. So my boyfriend watches Streets of Fire curious because Diane Lane is in it. And he loved it. Went crazy for it. And he said, I can't believe you didn't like this more when it came out. And yet there were things I always liked about it, especially how you stage the two musical numbers that open and close the picture. They're thrilling. And you really can see its visual influence in everything from Paul Verhoeven's Robocop to David Fincher 7. And yet it bombed, even though the rock critic Greil Marcus wrote, Streets of Fire was the first and only film that had figured out how to take the aesthetic of rock video in a serious direction. And I wonder if Tom Cruise had starred in it as everyone thought he was going to at one point, would it have worked a little bit better with audiences? I mean, I guess he decided to uh, make Ridley Scott's legend, I think, instead. And I actually like Michael Perret, and I understand why someone might not. But obviously you get what Tom Cruise would have brought to it. My only problem is that I wish there had been more music. When I was talking about Damien Chazelle's La La Land on this podcast a few episodes back, one of the things I talked about was that there was, is a kind of movie a lot of directors want to make, an elaborate and stylized musical. And I mentioned that everyone from Coppola to Woody Allen to Robert Altman to De Palma to Martin Scorsese had all made these very elaborate musicals. And for some reason, I forgot to place you in that mix. And again, Ellen Ames' two musical numbers at Bracket of the Movie are spectacular. And I can't believe how good the overall picture looks. First, I'm curious, what did you think of La La Land? And what did you think about some of the other musicals your peers made? And what is it about the musical that every filmmaker has an affinity for? I mean, most people I know have one on the back burner. I mean, I know I do. Well, in the first place, Brad, you were positioning the movie, my movie, as a musical, which I agree with on the whole, but it was not at the time. It was kind of thought of as a kind of a weird action movie or a movie that was very difficult yes. to find it was. a handle on. It was. Uh, I agree with you that uh, it's as close as I got a chance to make as a musical. I I wanted two more songs, but there were problems, and uh, uh, that didn't work out. Uh, La La, uh, what yeah. did I think? Nobody think uh, that. Uh, oh, I thought it was I thought it was uh, entertaining, and I thought uh, it was audacious, you know, for the mm-hmm. for the moment. Yeah, and uh, I agree. It was pleasant. Uh, it uh, was very reminiscent of uh, Jacques Demy's. Uh, umbrellas. Uh, Jacques was a friend of mine. Uh, I have to say that umbrellas holds beautifully. Uh, uh, just such a huge position in my own imagination, my own life. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I think it's a wonderful movie. He was a wonderful man, by the way. Mm-hmm. Sweet, uh, generous, gentle. He was everything I am not. <laughs> and the uh, uh, he was a delightful guy to know. And I think his his art reached its apotheosis, really, with that film. And uh, I suspect that uh, the maker of uh, 
Lala would would agree. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, you know, the um, it's kind of hard hard not to. Some of your peers were making them compliment one from the heart. Scorsese made New York, New York. Uh, Altman made Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, De Palma made Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, there were these. They were making these musicals uh, in that period, and it seemed to be something that was that that artists, filmmakers, are drawn to, and everyone like has one in them and wants to. Well, uh, but I think what's the common thread there is that this. Uh, we were all kind of doing mixed genre musicals. Yes. The uh, the musical form had seemed to be something much lighter, right? Than the what darker, those, right. yeah. The, and suddenly, people were making. I was making an action movie musical, okay. And uh, Bob was making a heavy drama, political, political, yeah. etc. Et I can't remember. Coppola's movie well enough to tell right. you what I... It's it's hard to no. remember that. Scorsese obviously was making the real tough New York movie. Kind of a Cassavetes-like yeah, relationship, uh, dra- showbiz drama. Yeah. But it's, on it's just a huge, massive... Yeah, and, you know, and a, you know, a real tough-minded uh, New York drama around the, around the music. I find New York, New York to be a fascinating movie. I think the reason people and cinephiles are interested in Hard Times, The Driver, The Warriors, The Long Rider, Southern Comfort, more than really some of the often beautiful and idiosyncratic work you did in the 90s and beyond is simply because cinephiles are interested in that period. I don't think the movies are necessarily so much better. It's just that the new Hollywood period dominates the conversation in a way the 90s or the oddies just don't. Do you think this is true, or do you believe that there is a difference in the movies? I am uh, so happy to hear you say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I have said to my children occasionally, you know, if I had been killed in a plane crash in 1986, I would be a legend. But the <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, the films that uh, I've done since, in my opinion, are actually stronger in many oh, ways. Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, than than the first eight or ten or whatever it was and uh i think that 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 opinion hasn't caught fire yet or i don't know if it ever will but i mean it's it's um not for me to say but um uh i think i'm a a much stronger director now in in the 90s Mm -hmm. i thought uh some of the work i was doing then i was realizing better in terms of thematic material that was being worked out through the characters have cinephiles mythologized the new Hollywood of the 70s all out of proportion? And if the 70s begat the new Hollywood, then what did the 80s begat? What was the follow-up to that? Look, have they mythologized the 70s? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a desperate place that, uh, you know, we were – we just saw ourselves as in the continuing struggle mm-hmm. <laughs> to try to uh, get movies made and – make good movies and um i don't think anything i don't think anything changed until the kind of superhero comic book things took over it was always uh, i mean what changed was the viewing habits have been diminishing now it's, it's, it's a very complicated question of what's happened to the motion pictures uh we all i think realize it's in a vastly diminished state compared to what it was 20 or 30 years ago uh, in terms of 
studio product and that kind of business. They're doing very good work in the independent cinema. I mean, there's a lot of good movies that get made. Uh, the the old studio system is very dead, um, except for the children's movie and the superhero movie. Well, the Hollywood studio system was coming back in the early 80s, and you were operating within it. But I guess what I wanted to know, not about where we are now, but was it suddenly the night and day reality, as Paul Schrader described it, after making Cat People and then living in Japan for a couple of years and then coming back and noticing the town was completely different, uh, different people, different business model? Did you feel the end was near for the new Hollywood because of the success of Jaws and Star Wars? Because I often feel that those are two movies that are examples of it, uh, a new Hollywood sensibility. Tarantino thinks that it's Jaws and Star Wars' fault, but he would also add in Rocky. Uh, though, of course, the most discussed theory is that Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate was the real reason the door closed on the new Hollywood and ushered in a system where agents like Mike Ovitz and the lawyers decided what movies to make. And it all happened, according to Schrader, he thought quite rapidly. Would you remember that period like that, or is he just being uh, very, very, very worried, Paul Schrader, <laughs> as he often is? I love Paul. Oh, yeah. and, and I think uh, and I think he's had such an admirable career, and I, I think he's a very courageous guy. He's the rarest thing among filmmakers. He's a real intellectual. And, he is, know. but he's also complained that he should have been more of a businessman, and that uh, he somehow didn't figure that out. That's the yin and yang of things. It um, is. I think we can all say that. I wish I wish I had been a better businessman in a lot of ways, but uh, um, you know, I, no. When you live it day to day. You know, you don't. You're not quite as, aware of that. Uh, as right. aware, it was certainly changing. Suddenly, you were making movies. I had been privileged to make movies like, oh, say, Hard Times or Southern Comfort or something. And uh, and by the end of the '80s, in making something like Red Heat, you know, you were you had to be making a movie uh, that was going to go into three thousand theaters, right? And that was a huge change. And you, the pressure to get uh, a name in your movie was much greater than uh, if it was going to have any size whatsoever. And there was a kind of, I don't know, there was a kind of madness to it. Um, you know, if you're an action director, I always read this, you know, they always say Walter Hill, action director. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and people say, well, say, well, you know, do you like that? Yeah, I always like it. It sounds good. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a neat sounding, it's like center fielder or heavyweight fighter yeah. or something, you know, it yeah. <laughs> uh, um, sounds, sounds good. But at the same time, it means you're on the back porch, you know, yeah. you, you're, you're a back porch guy and uh, you, you have your hat in your hand most of the time and you're knocking on the window. And, uh, again, I, I, I've been, I've had a lucky career and I've got to make movies and. <clears throat> No complaints, but uh, that's just part of the genre filmmaking thing. And um, well, you know, Peckinpah had that problem too when he w uh, wanted to do "Play It As It Lays," the Joan Didion novel. The studio wouldn't let him because they didn't think he had the right sensibility yeah. for that. And I wanted you, though no one was listening to uh, me as the writer, as a twenty-one-year-old kid. I wanted Walter Hill to direct Less Than Zero, but no one was listening to me at that point. Directors are engines of ego and ambition, you once said. And you once said that you thought 
Some of the new Hollywood directors were frauds and fools. I'm not asking you to name names, but I wanted to name, <laughs> but I wanted to name a few filmmakers from that period and get your assessment of them, either creatively or professionally. You can say one word, or you can talk as long as you want. Or you can I, just stay listen, I, I usually don't say anything about a okay. director unless they're dead. I, I have some dead ones here. I'll just ask about the dead ones. Okay. What did you think of Robert Altman and especially uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Oh, I kind of thought it was. Uh, I thought it was really an interesting movie, but I thought it was a mess. And I thought uh, I never thought that uh, Warren and Christie fit into the rest of the movie. I mean, they looked like movie stars, right. and everybody else were these fabulous character yeah. actors. And and I didn't like the music in it very much. So I, I'm being very picky. Okay. Uh, I knew Bob. Bob and I had a couple of fights, and we didn't get along a couple of times. Then we kind of kissed and made up towards the end but uh uh i'm a great admirer of, of, of altman i'm just mm-hmm. uh and uh, and his unbelievable uh passion for going out there and making me you know he just never stopped he would he would do anything he'd do uh, he'd put his own money up he'd put his house up he'd do and you'd have to i i'm not like that you know right i'd i'd Think well, you know, my kids have got to go to school or something like that. I, I, I just, uh, I'm not built that way. But I admired, and uh, and Bob was, he was, everything was about making film. Yeah. Hal Ashby. I knew Hal. Uh, I first met Hal uh, on the Thomas Crown Affair. He was the, he supervised the editing and was the associate producer. I was the second assistant director in the picture. And we were we were always friendly. We got along. Uh, and we made we amused each other. I think. And uh, I thought he made some terrific films. Mm-hmm. Mike Nichols. Well, I liked what he said towards the end. He had a rule that he wasn't going to work with any more actors that were assholes. And uh, <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's a good. You know, we all reached that point. His uh, his films are really not my cup of tea, but I think he was very skillful. Michael Cimino. Oh, Michael was a, a great filmmaker. Um, you only have to be great once. I agree. That's what Orson Welles said. You only yeah. need one. You only, you only one need great need, film. Yeah. yeah, and uh, The Deer Hunter is a great film. It's a great film, yeah. and uh, it it became. It was valued properly, and then it was devalued because it was discovered to be a right-wing movie or right. perceived to be a right-wing right. movie. It has wonderful performances. It has wonderful scenes. It's shot brilliantly. Uh, I knew Michael. I knew Michael back when I was writing The Getaway. Uh, it was when I first met him, and uh, I always liked him. He was not a real approachable guy, you know. Uh, I guess maybe I wasn't either. I don't know, but I. But we knew each other. We were working for the same producer, and uh, uh, and we would kind of run into each other over the years. And uh, I always liked, I admired him. In a recent Vanity Fair article by Lily Annalick, she posited the theory that without Pauline Kael writing the review that saved Bonnie and Clyde, there might not have been a new Hollywood, since that review helped out a movie that is often referred to as the beginning of the new Hollywood. And it also jump-started Kale's career with her being a key champion of the new Hollywood, as well as writing exciting reviews because the movies that were being made were exciting. 
And Annalik writes that Kale legitimized the new Hollywood movement in her review of Bonnie and Clyde. I know it's hard to understand this now, but Bonnie and Clyde was a movie its studio didn't believe in, and it was getting some contemptible reviews with some mainstream critics outraged by the bloody violence and the romanticizing of the criminal. A movie that was bombing before her review changed the way people looked at the movie. What do you make of Kale's influence during that period and into the 70s? Has it been overestimated? And did you know her? I mean, film criticism suffers from being overly politically correct. And you've complained about the high seriousness of American film criticism. Did this apply to Pauline? Well, did I know her? Uh, I went to New York at the time that Hard Times opened, and she took me to dinner. Uh, She asked to have dinner, and and we had dinner, and... uh, we got along pretty well. We actually got in a little bit of a argument about a couple of things, but you know, she was she was adversarial. I mean, that was kind of part of the deal. But uh, but she was obviously very friendly and uh, uh, to me. And then um, uh, I never really saw. I, I ran I ran into her once after that, and she said something. Uh, well, you know, whatever. What happened to you? Or something. It was she. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, uh, and then, then I got word that she was happy again or something. Uh, the cult of personality loomed large, I think, with her. Um, I'm, I have mixed emotions about. Well, no, I, I don't think much of that. And I also thought about her. I, well, in the first place, she was a great, what I call magazine journalist. You know, mm-hmm. she just she write, wrote in a pulpy, fast, readable style, and it would. It would cut through. It would just yeah. cut through the shit, and she was wonderful at that. And it was of the moment, you know. It was yes. so of the moment. I don't. I never understand, you know. The critics. It's a hard. Being a critic is a hard job. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I. I certainly grant this, and they. Uh, you know, I. I finally think about being a critic. It's not a test of the movie. It's a test of them. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, they're the one on trial. Right. And she was, she was very clever. Uh, I don't know how much of this was a calculation or a, just an instinctive reflex, but she did what if I'd like to think maybe if I were a critic I might do, which was you, whatever is conventional wisdom about something, write the most opposite kind of slashing. Uh, uh, indictment of the conventional wisdom, and and in that sense, it was always this great career move. Yeah, you know, it was uh, uh, blasting. Uh, you know, the Robert Wise movie, the Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. It was the revisionist approach to Bonnie and Clyde, or mm-hmm. uh, the celebration of Robert Altman, right. or and. She made it work for her career. Uh, again, I don't know how much of it was pure instinct. Totally, I mean, I think it was felt. I don't. I don't think it mm-hmm. was uh, uh, an act. But it was also as a career strategy. It was a. It was a goddamn smart way to approach it, and she became uh, very. You know, she wasn't very good at logic. Right. You know, she would contradict herself within a. <laughs> within the own review but uh she was fun and uh and filmmakers there's no question that filmmakers really paid attention to her and the studios you know there's always this thing the studios uh 
feed off the filmmakers and so they want to be hip and what's going on and so she had a she had a tremendous influence you know the warriors was pauline kale's last review in the new yorker as a film critic in that spring of 1979 before she went off to hollywood at the behest of warren Beatty to work at paramount and help produce a james toback movie and she was there for about i think nine months before she fled back to the new yorker i think after she'd been fired do you know anything about her being at Paramount? Or no, happened? never, never ran into her, never saw her there. And I will say this: I don't think it was it was never the same for her. No, uh, after she had this thing in Hollywood and then went back on Brewster's Millions, you discover that Richard Pryor didn't believe he was funny unless he took drugs. He also believed that if he took drugs, he would die. Also, he had money problems, so he had to work and take jobs where he would be paid a lot of money. It was difficult, you have said. Paul Schrader, who worked with Pryor on Blue Collar, said Pryor was the single most difficult actor he worked with in nearly 40 years of making movies, and that Schrader often thought of suicide during that shoot and thought it was possible that Pryor might murder him. You said at one point, people confuse being a director with being an acting coach. If you cast the right person, you're going to get the right performance. Did you get the right performance from Pryor? And what do you do with a difficult actor like that, someone having substance abuse problems on a set? Well, I liked – look, number one, I really liked Richard. He was – he could be very charming and uh, uh, I don't want to run away from the idea. He was difficult and there was always – you know, you could feel the fuse burning, shall we say. You know, it was always um, – you never knew when something was going to erupt. It. Uh, he was mainly, though, on that picture, in a melancholy state. He was. He had been recently diagnosed with the disease that finally captured him. Multiple uh, uh, MS. Yeah. MS. Yeah. And uh, uh, he, as I, as you quoted, he he was in severe doubt as to whether he was still funny. And he certainly thought it wasn't very funny unless he was going to take drugs. And then he thought if he took his drugs. Was he funnier when he took the drugs? Well, I don't know. And I, what what he was doing, he, um, you know, one of the criticisms of the movie is that he's not terribly funny in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we were trying, you know, the, the reason he wanted to do the movie, uh, when I first talked to him, is, you know, I didn't want him to do his uh, street routine and all that kind of business. It, uh, um, as Larry Gordon always used to say to me, yep, no, absolutely not. You don't want anything that's going to make the movie commercial. Let's, uh, you know, your principles are certainly uh, absolutely take all that out. And uh, <laughs> wonderful producer Larry, and uh, who I had great great fun with. And what we were looking for was a comedic acting performance. That is, you know, the light leading man, the mm-hmm. um, more the, shall we say, the uh, the young Tom Hanks kind of roles or some of that kind of acting that, right. within that field. And uh, uh, Richard wanted to play that. He thought that was a challenge. Interesting. And and uh, so we we um, moved forward. I. Th- I, I don't think like when Paul was working with him, he was really uh, from the stories I heard. You know, Richard was a very dangerous character in those days, and I caught him in a in a much more sanguine 
uh, uh, time in his life. Uh, but, you know, it, it again, uh, I thought he was a national treasure, too. I mean, I, I was, I used to kind of pinch myself because I, I love being around him. I like being around him. But it was difficult. It was difficult. Uh, part of the difficulty was John Candy, that John was in the movie. John was a wonderful guy, great guy. But John was one of these guys. John would come through the door and he was joke, 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 joke. You know, he'd through the stage door and he he knew everybody's name on the set and he'd hey, how's your kid? And I'd and he was friendly, funny, played to the crew, played to anybody that was there. Richard was wrapped up unto himself, didn't like to hang around on the set, wanted to go to the his trailer all the time and everything. And he'd see Candy with the crew bantering. And then occasionally Richard would kind of enter into it and try to amuse the crew or, you know, be funny. And it didn't work very well. And everybody could feel oh, the strength. So it was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, um, those were the tough moments. But um, I always thought Richard was very good in the movie, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I thought so, too. David O. Selznick once said there might have been more good movies if there hadn't been a movie industry. On The Getaway, the director, Sam Peckinpah, is, I guess, now full on alcoholic. And it really was the last movie he made where it hadn't consumed him yet, uh, the booze and the coke. What was Sam Peckinpah like and what were his demons? I mean, I bring up the Selznick quote, and later I want to ask you about the executive culture at Paramount. But it became apparent for some people that it was the studio executives and the money men who were destroying him? Or was this a self-fulfilling prophecy? He was, uh, in in my opinion, every – I'm not a doctor, but uh, he was every definition of an alcoholic. I had um, – alcohol was a problem, shall we say, in my family. And um, I've actually been known to take a drink or two in my life, too. And so <laughs> I'm uh, not unaware of the whole phenomenon. Uh, he wasn't – uh, he he had an enormous capacity, and it would generally make him edgy, and uh, and he it would bring out a lot of paranoia, shall we say? He was always deeply suspicious. It was always about loyalty. You know that was his deepest instincts: is Are you loyal? Most of the people in my life have not been loyal to the, and uh, not an uncommon thing with. Uh, I think creative people and and, mm-hmm. uh, and directors. He um, he felt commitment and loyalty were everything, and he must would drink an enormous amount every night, and then he would be badly hung over the next day, and then by the time he was feeling better, he was you know out that night. He would uh, he he lived this kind of. Whether he was prepping or in post, he'd live at the studio. He'd have a trailer brought into the studio. He had a he had a house, a trailer house out in uh, uh, Malibu. But uh, he would most of the time stay in town, and he would literally live at the at the studio. And then he would, and all the studios have a bar next door, you know, or something like that. So he would be a frequenter of the bars that were 
you know, it's where the grips and electricians yeah. and everybody drinks and all that kind of thing in in house stuff. And uh, so what? What got him into the uh, into that idea? I don't know. I always say this about the ghetto. I think he was an enormous. I, I love his work. I do too. And and uh, and I feel like I've just been kind of negative. I I liked him a lot. It was never easy talking to him. Sometimes it was. I, I'm, nothing is always true. But uh, he could be very funny and very witty and uh, and very warm and very supporting. Uh, but you were usually kind of in a conversation where you weren't too sure he was kind of searching, and you somehow didn't know the. You were somebody once said it was like you were in a movie, except you didn't know the you didn't know the dialogue, and he did. So uh, <laughs> the lines, but uh, but I do think that the the getaway, which I don't think is his greatest film by any I think it's a good movie yeah. but but um, and I was always very pleased about it and I, and I'd be the first to tell you he took my script and made it better yeah. he made it yeah. better and yeah. he he did a terrific job of shooting it yeah. but I think it's the last movie that he was fully in command of his talent and his uh, gift there's a difference with bring me the head um and the Killer Elite. I mean, there's movies that he made after that that you can definitely see after the, the he, he, uh He's lost a lot Pat of... Pat Garrett. Uh, yeah, the kid. Yeah. Uh, Pat Garrett is, is a movie it? that many people uh, think is one of his greatest achievements. I'm, I'm sorry to say that I don't think I that. agree with you. I don't either. At Paramount, you were dealing with Don Simpson and Michael Eisner in the early 80s, making mm-hmm. 48 Hours, which had, I guess, been in development for most of the 70s. Don Simpson was a drug addict who was not a happy man at that point. Michael Eisner was never a help in creative matters. He had many opinions, but none of them were any good. The executives wanted Eddie Murphy to be more like Richard Pryor, who was the number one black actor in the country at that time, who passed in 48 hours. And there was tension at the studio. And there was also the fact that Eddie Murphy, who had never acted in a movie before and is only 20 years old, was unprepared, nervous, and according to Larry Gross, terrible and not funny. And that Paramount wanted to shut the film down and recast it. And you told Paramount... No. If you replace Eddie, then you replace me. Someone gets Murphy an acting coach and tells him not to party on nights before shooting. And one of the Paramount executives told you that you would never work at Paramount again after disputes over 48 hours. And when you did a few years later, he was gone. What did that executive kind of represent in the Hollywood of the early 80s? Or was it even the early 80s? Was there always this notion of the executive as that kind of person? Uh, were there any studios you worked for that ran more smoothly than other studios? I mean, certainly Paramount. Was Paramount problematic? Fox seems problematic. Well, no, the, uh, actually the Fox uh, studio under Alan Ladd uh, was, a, was a good place to work. Right. I, I, Laddie was terrific. Uh, I never had a and, – and Gareth Wigan and, and Jay Canner, they, they ran a, a – lovely ship i thought mm-hmm. and uh they didn't make a lot of the movies they made weren't much to my taste but but that's a different issue but i certainly thought that uh they ran a pleasant play paramount was just very aggressive and uh they uh you know they how do i put this they uh, 
Michael had the courage of his own vulgarity, I guess is the way I would put it. And there were a lot of good things about Eisner. He wasn't afraid of movie stars, which was unusual in um, in uh, studio executives. He uh, he believed in his own taste. Uh, you know, he would, and when he and he had a he had a great capacity to pick hit. I mean, finally, you know, people talk about this job as the, the big thing about the job is you're going to pick what's getting made and are they going to turn out to be hit. I mean, that's the way the job was then. And Michael had a, a very good batting average. Uh, for some reason, he, and, he he didn't like me very much and I didn't like him much, to tell you the truth. And um, I never really quite un- understood it. I think it was kind of instinctive. Um, Barry Diller I didn't really know very well. Uh, I only met him a couple of times. He was kind of above the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, although a, a few years later, I did do some business with uh, uh, Barry Diller, and he was he was terrific. It didn't work out, but he was terrifically fair, um, and he kept his word absolutely. So I, I have Michael was complicated, and uh, he was. Uh, I guess he was complicated. I don't know. I just didn't get along with him. And uh, I thought they would send you these notes, and they were idiotic notes. Don was a complicated guy. Don had a lot of problems, uh, uh, both emotionally and with the, as you've already alluded to, his... Not a secret. Not a secret. secret. And uh, I would just shit-can all these notes, and uh, which is probably... Not the best way to get along with executives <laughs> to start with. But I thought, uh, you know, I didn't think anybody there would, knew how to make that movie as good as I was going to, as I knew how. Uh, I knew very, I knew absolutely there was nobody there that knew how to make the movie as well as I could make it. And that um, uh, it was on the lot. And um, so we just slugged it out. Uh, Larry Gross... I didn't know he had said that. That's not right. Uh, Eddie was not terrible. Eddie was uneven. The first two weeks he was talking about. Well, even the then. Even then. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Eddie is in the movie. You know, no, Eddie's that's great the, in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I said to Nick when we – I'd met Eddie in New York. I, I said, look, this guy's – I came back to L.A. And I said, uh, look, Nick, he's really talented. He's going to help this movie. He's terrific, and I think he's going to. Re- I think it'll really work. Uh, but he is not a trained actor, and so I'm. I'm telling you this, and this is tough on you. The the one take that Eddie's good, you got to be good every take, Nick. Right. Because the one take that Eddie's good, we're going to print it. It's going to be like working with a dog or a kid. Right. The one time. That Right. Well, that's not fair, Walt. God damn it. You know, I don't I can't. Uh, he's, Nick is the only person in the world who calls me Walt. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they got along great. They they uh, Nick was very fond of Eddie and uh, and vice versa. And it worked out quite well. But uh, but what they would, you know, you would print certain takes for different reasons. And sometimes within those takes, Eddie wasn't so good. But there were other parts of it that were valuable, or something. I thought, and the studio got excited about all this. But the but the biggest thing was, he 
he was very different than Richard Pryor. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's the, whether you want to call it institutional racism or just capitalist paranoia or whatever, I don't give a shit. It's just, you know, they were looking to protect their money with what they thought a funny black man was. And, uh, and to, and I will say this too, the, um, I've expressed some negative ideas maybe about Michael. Uh, I showed him some cut stuff. My, as soon as Michael saw it, he said, fine, don't, you know, he ended the, all the discussion and, uh, uh, he was he was very smart about that. The very talented American filmmaker James Gray, who we just talked about, and uh, whose latest movie we both saw this last week, The Lost City of Z, uh, has said that capitalism destroyed the art of studio movie making, and that a great American art form and a great American export is gone. Gray has made six movies that harken back to the heyday of idiosyncratic big studio movie making of the 1970s. And he recently said, people assume that because I'm a director, I make tons of money, but I'm struggling financially. I'm very lucky to get to do what I what it is I want to, to do. I've made good or bad, large scale, uncompromising movies, the movies exactly that I wanted to make. And that's a beautiful gift. So I'm not complaining about that. But I struggle, and I have a hard time paying the bills. I'm 47 years old. I live in an apartment. I can't buy a house. But if I were coming of age in 1973, I would probably be living in Bel Air. The whole reason for this is exactly because the middle is gone. Now you either have franchises or you make a movie on your iPhone. This is the economic system in a nutshell. Five directors make Marvel pictures, and then there's the rest of us trying to scrounge around to find the money to make films. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the audience only gets to see Marvel, then they only want Marvel. And then if they only want Marvel, only Marvel is made. And I don't even have a problem with Marvel. The problem is not the specifics of each movie. The problem is that it's the only movie you can now see in a multiplex. And when it's the only game in town, you're looking at the beginnings of the death throes of an art form. Now, is this being old-fashioned and overly dire? Or is this simply the truth for the kind of movies James Gray makes and maybe the movies you used to make? And how should we be optimistic about the future of American film? Well, I don't indicting capitalism as a whole. I mean, um, I think that the Hollywood system finally has probably made more good movies than any other economic system has managed to produce. Um, I don't think socialism is the answer. I mean, the idea that committees are going to pick you know what movies get made and who's going to make them doesn't strike me as uh, a world I want to live in but uh, uh, I also but having said that I, I think he's 100% right about the current phenomena of, of things and uh, the I, I think that elements of uh, and I'm not saying that he did this but don't ever feel sorry for yourself if you're making movies you know it's a and I don't think he is. I guess in the, in the he had he been around then he probably would have been making more money. I I think that's a that's probably a fact. But he's still you know he's making movies and um, as we used to say beats working. So 